Lord Jesus, thank you that we know as we read your word, you were the flame in that burning shrub that spoke to Moses and said these things about yourself. And there are many things that we could be afraid of, Lord. What will happen tomorrow? What does it mean when a nation called Israel is surrounded? What if we get sick? What will we do then? What if we are persecuted? What if we have to give testimony and we don't know what to say? There's all these things that we're afraid of. What if something's going to hurt? We thank you that you are with us in all those things. And that we have your name that is not just a label for you, but a way that we might understand who you are and what you've declared about yourself. So as I pray this morning, I ask that you would lift our hearts up, that we would understand your name, that is who you are, every aspect of you, and that we would live according to the authority that we have as your children and even co-heirs, as your word says, with you. I pray that we would have then, in thinking of this, what you promised by your spirit, and that is peace. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, kids, you may go now. Go at a reasonable speed, not at a rate at which you'd fall and break your nose and bleed everywhere, but just a normal speed leaving. It looks like, whoa, the kids are actually doing what I said. I don't, that's a first. Our passage this morning is from our Identity Matters series, and we are looking at 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 6. So the, the title of the sermon, and you'll notice the pattern if you've been able to listen to sermons over the past kind of month or so, and it is holy wives. Holy wives. And there's something that happens when we preach, but just in our lives in general, and it's, it's to miss the forest for the trees, or not being able to see the forest for the trees, right? You can see on the screen a definition for that. When we can't understand or appreciate something that's something bigger going on, because we're really focusing on uh, a few parts of it. This happens in our lives a lot. I think of a, an example of this. So there's always a guy everywhere, and sorry if you're this guy, okay? Um, but I'm going to call you out. The guy that will spend $2 in gas to save 20 cents on gas, right? It doesn't make any sense. Like when you do the math, you're losing money to drive five miles out of your way to get gas. So you're kind of missing the forest for the trees. Someone might say, you're penny wise, pound foolish. And for some reason, by the looks on your faces right now, maybe you just know the passage is coming. Maybe a lot of you do that because you look really mad at me right now uh, that I just said that. So just, uh, well, let's leave that one behind. Tuesday night, some of you were here sitting in this way. Uh, Thursday night, some others came. Jasper kind of gave a quick run through the end times especially in regards to some specific doctrines that we hold at Summit and the elders teach here. But the end times, when we look in Revelation, when we look in Daniel 2 and 7 and First and Second Thessalonians, that's another case where we're sometimes not able to see the forest for the trees. Even the questions that were asked on those nights, well, good, were very tree kind of questions. And the trees aren't bad in the forest. They're what make up the forest, Trees are important. The trees are beautiful even. Trees are fun. They're fulfilling. They're motivating. 
in the forest. But we must understand the big picture. And this happens when we preach too. The way that we have to, because for sake of time and things like that, the way that we break up passages impacts this as well. So if we miss, when we're preaching through 1 Peter 2 and 3, if we miss the forest of 1 Peter 2, we're in trouble. We get so focused on the tree that's right in front of us, we'll miss the beautiful picture of the whole forest. So you're going to need your Bible for this. I know some of you have digital Bibles on your phones or uh, tablets, but if you have a paper Bible, you're at a distinct advantage this morning for this part of the the message. So get your Bible, whatever form it might be in. So get it, uh, get your Bible. We're going to go through... We're going to look through a pattern. You can see on the screen this pattern that we're looking for. There is identity, humility, good conduct, or or right living, godly living. There is purpose, there's a cost, and there's an example as well. Every passage we go through very quickly, we're going to sprint through this. You will see this pattern show up. So you have an identity in Christ Jesus. God has decreed who you are. Ready to use your Bible? Good, that's good. If someone said no, I don't know what I would think there. It's kind of like, could you just be quiet? Um, But verse 9 of chapter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. God has decreed this over you in Christ Jesus. This is who you are. The world will make declarations over you and say, you are this, you are that. People will say things to you and say, you are this, you are that. You will even think things about yourself. I am this, I am that. This, according to the word of God, is who you are. You're chosen, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And in this identity, God has called you to something. You're to put others above yourself. You're to be humble. Look at Chapter 2, verse 13. All of you be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Jump to verse 18. Can you do it? Let's go quickly through this. Servants, what does it say? Be subject. Submit yourselves to your masters with all respect. You're going to have to flip a page perhaps in your Bible to chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, be subject. Husbands, in verse 7 of chapter 3, show honor to the woman. And verse 8, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So in your identity, you are called to put others above yourself and do good to them. You are to live rightly and demonstrate with your life good conduct. Go back to chapter 2, verse 12. What does it say? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Then up to verse 15 of chapter 2. For this is the will of God that, what does it say? By doing Good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people that they would not blaspheme God or his bride. Look at verse 20 of chapter two. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Verse one of chapter three, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Verse six, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Are you following in your Bible? Verse 9 of chapter 3, do not repay anyone evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. And this is with a purpose. Look at how much throughout chapter 2 and of chapter 3, it says so that or that. 
Back to chapter 2, verse 9. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. To verse 12. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I hope you are starting to see the pattern in God's word here. Verse 15 of chapter 2. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Verse 1 of chapter 3, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Keep looking in your Bibles. There's a cost to this. This requires that you give up your own life. Now, we understand this idea of humility and good conduct. It feels very good. Matches the pattern of Christianese language that we've learned But when we see that this requires that we give up our own lives, it becomes very uncomfortable to us. Jesus, when speaking of the end in Luke 17, said this. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. And then in every uh, synoptic gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, The Lord says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This aspect of cost that we see throughout chapter two and three of 1 Peter is very uncommon in some people's version of the gospel. All these things together as we look at this, identity, humility, this good conduct or right living, godly living, this purpose and this cost merge together in an example. And as you carry out the mission of living this way, you are depending on and displaying the gospel, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, back to your Bible really quickly. We're going to go to verse 21 of chapter 2. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps, his steps. Look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And then in chapter 3, verse 18, look ahead, if you will. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So there's this example that we we are following in Christ Jesus. This example keeps showing up all throughout scripture. And then as we live out that example, we ourselves are an example for the world to see. And the way that we subject ourselves to the authority that God has put over us reveals what we treasure, what we really desire, and who we are actually trusting as we live out that life. So then we get to this word likewise. Look in chapter 3 of verse 1. It says likewise. And if we hadn't been reading chapter 2, we would not be able to understand what the likewise is in chapter 3. Likewise. This word means in the same way. In the same way as what? In what we just walked through in chapter 2. And the second half even of chapter 3. We're each called to put others above ourselves. We're each called to be subject to the governing authorities. Slaves are called to be subject to their own masters for this purpose of other people being saved and God being glorified. 
Likewise, in this same way, wives then. So do you have the likewise? Do you understand the power of chapters 2 and 3? Wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that, even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Some things to note as we look at this verse in chapter 3, verse 1. The command is for a wife to be subject to her own husband. You see that there? Her own husband. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husband's. The authority of the husband is within marriage. The command for the wife to be subject is not towards all men, but a man, her own husband. Does that make sense? Someone give me a nod here. Good. All right. That's awesome. And there's a so that there. There's a so that. You should see it if you're looking in in your Bible. There's a so that. There's a purpose to this. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So as we think of husbands, this is really talking about unbelieving husbands. Now there's this interesting aspect where no one fully obeys the word of God, right? Only Christ was able to do that and continues to do that. And yet, as we look through all of 1 Peter, just as the whole letter, we recognize in this that it's talking about unbelieving husbands. This further cements this purpose in our lives, that we're to live in a way that would bring other people to Jesus Christ, that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. So there's two questions. Maybe you're thinking of it right now, uh, these questions. First question might be, what if I don't have a husband, right? So what if you are an unmarried woman? What if you're a widow? What if you're a man, Despite what the world might teach you, a man cannot have a husband. What if I'm the husband? What's the point of this set of verses for me then? Or what if my husband is already saved? If I'm to live in this way so that my unbelieving husband might come to Christ, might be one to Christ, what's the point of this verse if he is already in Christ Jesus? And here's the exhortation. These commands that we see in these six verses, they're not simply instructions or exclusively instructions for one group of people. They are those instructions for wives, but they're more than that. These are God's reproofs, rebukes, and encouragements that should convict and correct and motivate every person in this room about the submission and suffering and sacrifice in our own lives. Every one of us is called to be subject to Christ. Each in different roles and positions in which God has placed us. So if you are not a wife, when you read these narrower instructions for wives, your first action should not be pointing to the wives and saying, hey, be holier, be a better wife. Even though being a holier wife is good, Desirable, true, that's good. When you read through and see and hear from this passage, you should consider your own submission to the Lord. So if you walk out of here this morning with the conviction that you're fine and everyone else needs to change 
and there's no thought towards how your own life lines up to the example of Jesus Christ, you're missing the point. Do you hear that? Especially husbands, do you hear that? Children, are you honoring and respecting your father and mother? Husbands, do you submit to Christ in the way this passage calls your wife to submit to you? Christ has authority over you. All of us together at Summit, uh, do we put the good of others and the truth of the gospel ahead of our own rights? Do we submit to human authority and bosses, not just good ones, but bad ones? Do we submit to the elders of the church? Because the authority that drives every one of those things is Jesus Christ, the word of God. Do we at Summit submit to Christ together this way as his bride? Jesus Christ is the head. He has authority over us. And if you're a wife with a husband who already knows Jesus, first of all, you should be very thankful to God for putting you in the situation that you're in and grateful for that. And then you should be thinking this way. Is the whole of my life focused on making sure that the world sees the beauty of God's design in my marriage and the beauty of the gospel through my marriage and making sure that the whole of my marriage is showing God's word to be powerful and beautiful and true. That's the way, wives, that you should be thinking even if your husband is already saved. So now let's look at some instructions that God has for holy wives. But as we do this, make sure that you keep that forest in mind. Don't get so caught up in a tree that might be in front of you. There's nothing wrong with the trees, but you must remember the forest. So remember your identity in Christ Jesus, what God by his word has decreed about you. Remember that you're called to humility and good, godly conduct, but that has a purpose. This comes at a cost. There's a sacrifice to this. But in your obedience, you are both following the example of Jesus and setting an example for the whole church and your husband and your children and all to see. All right, holy wives. Look at verse one. Holy wives understand what God means when he says be subject. Now, the world hears be subject and they kind of think of the example on the screen. Basically, oh, waste your life and your talents and your abilities on some stupid guy that doesn't know what he's doing, right? Mindlessly do what your husband says. No discernment, no thought, no questions, no desire to change or grow. Just do what your husband says. When we think about submission, is that what God is thinking? Is that what Christ was thinking when he submitted to the will of his father? Is that what his father wanted for his life? To just do what the father said, don't even think about it, don't grow or change. No, What God is saying when he tells you to put yourself in submission or be subject to your husband is put yourself under the authority of your husband. Think back, dig through the cobwebs of your brain. Jasper explained this well. I think it was last week. Be subject. It's the same word we see back in chapter two. Paul used it in a lot of his letters. It's also used in the gospels. It's used in the book of Hebrews, whoever wrote that, whatever your opinion might be. And it's a compound word means under order. So in the government, submission is about positions of authority. In the military, if you've been in the military, you understand that submission is about rank. And there's a saying in the military, and if you've served, you know this, and it's salute the rank, not the man. 
It is about the rank that God has assigned. And for the Christian marriage, it is submitting to God's order for marriage. Here's the challenge. The world, when you think about the world, the world thinks only the person who would call the shots has any value. But what does this say then about Christ who submitted and gave up his life for others, submitting to the will of his father? No, there is something of greater value than just being the shot caller, of being the one who makes the decisions, of being the leader. So submit to the authority that God has given your husband and then seek to use every gift, every talent, every ability that God has given to you because there, he has given you so much in Christ Jesus by his spirit to its absolute maximum potential to help your husband exalt Jesus Christ in your marriage so that he and your children who are watching and everyone around you who is watching will see and experience the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ at work. That's what it means to be subject. Now there's some so what ifs or like, but what ifs here. We have to be a little careful when we ask this question. So what if, or but what if, or sometimes we'll say, yeah, but. There's a lot of yeah, buts. Sometimes they're the, so you're telling me's, right? And we have to be very careful when we ask what if questions. Because sometimes in our hearts, we are asking that as hypothetical scoffing at God's word that's rooted in disbelief of what God says to diminish the necessity of obeying God's word, right? Sometimes our hearts do that. We ask questions and we roll our eyes at the word of God thinking that's not sufficient or that couldn't possibly be good. So check your heart when you ask a what if question, right? But at the same time, what if it's very powerful and very helpful when we are considering how to live our lives, when we're seeking wisdom, when that's rooted in a godly desire to deal with sin, to know how to respond to hurt, to deal with frustration all in ways that bless others and glorify God. So what if we might say my husband or your husband is asking you to do something sinful? What if he's pressuring me to do something that violates your conscience? Fear God. Do not fear people. Don't sin just because your husband tells you to do it. Don't use your husband's authority either as an excuse to do something that you know is wrong. But in your refusal to sin and not do in that case what your husband says to do, be respectful pure, kind, and seek to bless your husband and glorify God in that so that he and your children and everyone around you will see and experience the power of the gospel. But there's this other case, this other what if. What if my husband doesn't even want authority, right? What if he's a passive weakling? What if he's not a good spiritual leader? What if he doesn't know anything about the Bible? What if he ignores my opinion? What if he has the emotional capacity or relational or communicative capacity of a sixth grader? What if he's a crappy, sorry, what if he's a terrible father? What if he's a drunk? Be subject to your husband. Ultimately, in this, you are submitting to Christ. He's your leader. Your husband is under Christ, but he's, Christ has called you to submit to your husband. If your husband's a jerk or a clown, the most pathetic, incapable lover ever, or if he has a total dead-end, poverty-stricken job, 
was a gaslighting, victim-blaming, sociopathic manipulator. Your willingness to submit to the word of God and be subject to your husband only highlights the power of the gospel more. This is no different than what we learned in chapter 2 and verses 18 and 19. If you want to glance back at those servants, be subject to your own master, to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So if your husband is a clown, be respectful and pure and kind and seek to bless him and to glorify God because in doing this, you are displaying the grace of Jesus Christ for everyone, including that broken, imperfect husband to see. But what if your husband is unfaithful? Or what if he just will not stop looking at pornography? This is tricky. The Lord indicates in the word what sexual immorality does to a marriage. How it violates the picture that he intends a marriage to paint. A fidelity and true worship. There's not really a quick answer that you can like fashion up and throw up on a screen that would successfully handle every circumstance someone might have in their life to answer every question like this. But in your circumstances and within your marriage, be respectful, pure, kind. Seek to bless your husband and glorify God. Why? So that he and your children and everyone around you will see and experience the power of the gospel at work. And finally this, which I would imagine many of you are thinking of, what if my husband beats me up? Am I just supposed to take it if my husband beats me? I was looking at my notes uh, a couple of days ago on my laptop, and my son Brock saw this. Brock's 11, he's in sixth grade, and I love his question. He saw it and he read it and he got it. And I hope his question is very convicting to some men in this room. Why would a husband do that? That's what Brock said. Why would a husband do that? Brock's not an idiot. He's 11, so he has an 11-year-old mind. But that is a question that we should all ask. Why would a husband do that? This is a wrestling. On the one hand, when we hear about these things, there's a righteous anger that burns within us. When we think of vulnerable people like wives and then husbands beating on them, we want to do something about it. And that what it seems like few people will preach, but we, want, we, we have to say it as we think about the word of God. What if in the garden Jesus had said, or what if when he was being smacked by the guards, Jesus had just said, you just want me to take this God? What do we do with the tension of those situations? The righteous anger of vulnerable people being abused and beaten and Christ's willingness to take that on. Wives, be respectful and pure and kind. Seek to bless your wicked husband and glorify God and your kids and everyone around you. But also submit yourself to the word of God 
If your husband beats you up, you have to be subject to governing authorities. So you have to tell the police. God put the police in place and thank God for a country like ours where the police will listen to people and there are laws against such things. You have to be subject to your church leaders. You know what we will tell you to do if you are being beaten? We want you to call the police. We want to be with you. So tell your church leaders and tell the police. And then wives, be subject to Titus 2, 3 through 5. You can look at that later. You have to seek help also from godly women in the church. And then be subject to Matthew 18, 15 through 20. You have to seek even in the awfulness of the situation to gain your husband. If your brother sins against you, look at Matthew 18, 15. You can turn there. I think it's going to be on the screen as well. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained. We can compare that with the word one that you see in 1 Peter 3, verse 1. It's the same core word. You have gained, you have won over your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be, you as a gen- be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. It is awful what sin does to men and women that they would beat on each other. But we should not compound sin in ignoring a passage like Matthew 18 and saying that this should always be hidden and we shouldn't talk about it. And someone shouldn't be shamed because they're beating their wife and to try to hide it and keep it a secret. So the elders of your church want you to obey the word of God. That your attitude would be for the salvation of your husband. The reconciliation of your marriage. Even while that involves enduring difficult things. Holy wives understand what makes what God means when he he says to be subject. Holy wives also understand that sin is what makes this difficult. If you go back to Genesis 3, uh, Jasper touched on this last, actually he did in the end times thing and then as he preached last week. But to the woman he said, that is God to the woman, I will multiply your pain and childbearing. I think women uh, that have had children, you get that. In pain you shall bring forth children. But then there's this, your desire shall be contrary to your husband but he shall rule over you. Some people would refer to this as a curse over the woman. That's not how I read it. It is God's declaration of what sin does to relationships. Specifically marriage. So because of sin, there's something about the wife where she's going to want to be contrary to her husband. She's going to want the position of authority that her husband has. And then the husband shall rule over her. The husband will have that, but then he's going to split this off in two ways. Either he's going to be lazy and complacent and let you have authority, or he's going to treat you like a servant. And really in both those cases, the man is treating you like a servant. God has given the man authority, and then he's just saying, well, you go do it. He's treating you like a slave. You go figure that out. Or he hurts you or dominates over you in a way that's contrary to how Christ cares for and loves the church. So he shouldn't be surprised When we think about marriage relationships, we're like, I just don't get why this is so hard. It's because we're in our flesh. 
God said it would be this way, and yet in Christ, there is a solution and there is hope. So just remember, sin is what makes this difficult. Sin is what makes this difficult, and it's in your flesh. Holy wives, remember that sin makes submission difficult. They also win their husbands with respect and pure conduct more than words. Look at uh, the end and then into two of verse, uh, verse one. That they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Peter's not demeaning here the value of words, of speaking. If you read chapter one, the very end of it is that the word, the proclamation of the word is what saves people. So there has to be proclamation. So this isn't saying don't talk, wife. Peter's emphasizing that your attitude and your actions carry more weight. If you fear God, when you see the word respect there, it is the Greek word phobos. If you fear God, if you're respectful, your life will be a walking testimony of the gospel. If you're living a dirty, crazy life, you're not setting a gospel example, right? If you're not chaste or pure in your conduct, as it says there, you're not setting the example of Christ. There is something, and it's become a stereotype, and I don't want you to ignore me because some people stereotype this, but there is this idea, and you might even see it in Proverbs, that sometimes wives like to nag their husbands, that is to use words to try to get their way or to get something. There's nothing wrong, wife, with you wanting your husband to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the will of God. But Peter's teaching here, it has to be in your conduct. You have to be fearing of God, respectful in your conduct. It has to be pure conduct. Don't just say it. You have to live your whole life to exemplify that. So when your husband, right, that they may be one without a word with respect and pure conduct, more than words. That is, you should have your life match the words that you know from the word of God. And if your life is not respectful and your conduct is not pure, do not be surprised that you're not setting a good example for your husband and there is continual tension in your marriage in that regard. Win your husband with respect and pure conduct and then draw attention to what Christ has done in your heart. Verse three, don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing that you wear. Some people will take this like, women shouldn't do that. That's not what Peter is writing. Don't let your adorning be external. In your life, what are you drawing attention to? What are you beautifying? You have to draw attention to what Christ has done to your heart. And I know there's a segment of women who are like, I don't care about my hair. I don't care about gold jewelry. I don't wear makeup. That's just not my, what do they say now? That's just not not my jam. And a, a segment of wives that would say, I am willing to go out to the store and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer pajama pants and a sweatshirt that says Traverse City, right? And look really not too great, And you're like, hey, I don't care about adorning. I'm free from this. But Peter is not saying that. He's saying, don't have it be about this, be about this. But let your, verse four, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. 
Do you have a quietness and gentleness in your spirit? When you think of the lyrics of the song we sang prior to the sermon, peace, bringing it all the peace, the storm surrounding me, let it break at your name, still, call the sea to still, the rage in me to still, every wave at your name. Quietness and gentleness. I don't know how many years ago it was, Heather and the boys and I were at, um, there was a, a storm approaching, so often we'll go to the beach, right, to watch it. It's amazing. And it was the worst I've ever seen it by the Holland Lighthouse. The pier completely swamped, waves just smashing, wind blowing sand everywhere. You couldn't hear hardly because the wind was blowing so strong. An absolute terror. If you'd been on the pier, you likely would have been washed off and killed. Just the rage of the water and the wind. As we think of that and then think of sitting maybe in a, a beach chair or wherever, your favorite place up north, and watching calm waters. What does your heart look like? Does it look like Lake Michigan by Holland Harbor on that night that Heather and I and the boys were there? Or does it look like that example of stillness? Is your heart anxious and constantly thinking of what would happen in the future with your children or your health or something? Are you consumed by that? Is that roiling through your heart? Or is there a rage at feeling anger at God for having to be subjected to difficult circumstances? The quiet and gentle spirit is very precious to God. Very precious. And that's not a quaint term. That is that it is very valuable to God. God sees you and he gives you peace by his spirit. It is a fruit of his spirit. And as you live that out and you trust in him, it is of great worth to God himself. Verse 5. For this is how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. So draw attention to hope and humility. How do you have humility? By hoping in God. Your hope, your willingness to fully trust God, to put your entire life in his hands, allows you to be humble. Your trust in God's promises let you live out the commands that he's given to you. So you have to have hope. Do you hope in God or is there some other thing that you're hoping in? If you do not hope in God, you cannot be humble. You cannot put yourself in the place of entire dependence on him. And the holy women who hoped in God in the past, these examples that we have in his word, adorn themselves by being subject to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And then look at the end of verse 6. And you are her children, you are holy wives, if you do good. And do not fear anything that's frightening. We're going to close kind of with this example of Sarah. Often we think of the people um, documented in scripture as these perfect examples. And Sarah is given as a perfect example here. And then we think of Abraham as, oh, this is a great guy. And his, his belief was credited to his righteousness. And this example, we have to know what the word of God says. Because ultimately, what, they're talking, what Peter's talking about here in this example is that Abraham was a dirtbag. Abraham was a terrible husband. 
Genesis 12, verse 10, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a beautiful woman in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you. You would think that Abram would learn there. But later, Abraham in Genesis 20, verse 11, is in another situation with Abimelech, and, and he tells Sarah to do the same thing. God sends a dream to Abimelech, and he says, what do you, you can't do this. And Abimelech is like, I didn't. I didn't touch her. And he goes and confronts Abraham. And Abraham says again, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Abraham abdicated his leadership because he was afraid. And he said, wife, you're going to have to do this for me. His entire basis of decision is made out of fear. And God then tells Sarah, in the example of Sarah, he's saying, you're her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Whatever situation you're in, do not fear. Now, that sounds awful, but then we recognize as we read the word of God, and I would encourage you to read Genesis 12 and then 20, God protected Sarah. God protected Sarah. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house, this is in chapter 12, with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. And then in chapter 20 of Genesis, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night, and he said to him, behold, you're a dead man because of the woman who you've taken, for she is a man's wife. God stopped the bad things from happening. God protected the woman. God protected the wife, Sarah. She's your example that even though you are facing things that are very frightening, you do not need to be afraid. And in that, you are to do good, fearlessly do good. God has given you an identity in Christ Jesus. And then he's given us these little identities. We're called the humility to put others above ourselves. We're called the righteous conduct to do good to people with this purpose that they would be saved and God would be glorified. And this requires that you give up your own life. Wives, as you carry out this mission... You are depending on and you are displaying the gospel for your husband. You're displaying it to your children and you're displaying it for the whole world to see. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that when we test your word, we see that it is good and perfect and pleasing. Help us to think according to your ways and not the ways of the world. Help us to have the mind of Christ who didn't consider equality with you to be a thing that he would grasp, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being found in the form of a man, and then humbling himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, and then awful death on a cross. And thank you, Father, that in that example, we also recognize that as we walk in those steps that Jesus walked, we also know that then you highly exalted him, Father, so that the name of Jesus every knee on earth and under the earth and above earth would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Help us to submit to your word that we might live out your example and the example of Jesus so that others would come to know who you are and you would be glorified. Amen.